0: Hello dreamers, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. The Danish physicist Niels Bohr discovered the structure of the atom in a dream. Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote his epic phantasmagorical poem *Kubla Khan, After a Dream. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was inspired by a dream. A favourite of mine, Hergé's Tintin in Tibet, first of many Tintin stories, just the same. Giuseppe Tartini said that his most famous work, the violin sonata in G minor, more commonly known as the Devil's Sonata, came to him in a dream in 1713. Keith Richards claimed to have dreamt the riff to I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Paul McCartney says that he dreamt the melody to yesterday, and that became the most covered pop song in history. AFIX twin Richard James says that 70% of his album, Selected Ambient Works Volume 2, was written while lucid dreaming. As I guess you've gathered, this episode is all about dreaming. But why? Well, I'm fascinated by dreams myself. And recently I had a thought isn't dreaming countercultural consciousness? Not just in terms of the dreams and visions that guided many countercultural ideas, but isn't there an analogue between the relationship of dreaming to waking and counterculture to culture? All of us have dreams. All of us are affected by our dreams, even if we don't recall them. Not just the lucky few have had some extraordinary creative inspirations are listed above, but who hasn't woken from sleep at some point with a feeling of fear, joy, regret, wonder? Well, we're going to dig into all that today with one of the UK's foremost dream researchers and teachers, Sarah Jane. But before we do, at the end, if you're interested... I'm going to talk a little bit about the responses that we've had to our survey. I wanted to say thanks to everybody who has written in and filled in that survey. You can join them if you like. And of course, to my recent correspondents, Ronnie, as ever, always sending me amazing links to films, which I'm going to share. Jenny Spires, as ever. Nigel and Judy and Pete, very nice to hear from you. Always nice to hear from people. Now, make yourself comfortable. Lie back and close your eyes if you like, unless you're driving or operating heavy machinery. And dream with my guest, Sarah James. Sarah is a dream researcher. She's been an enthusiastic lucid dreamer since she was a little kid. She's written about dreams, dream culture, and the anthropology of dreams for many years and talked on the subject of festivals, conferences, and events. Her book, Initiation Into Dream Mysteries, Explores the ancient history and philosophy of dream therapy and sleep medicine. She's become co director and curator of the Dream Palace in Athens. Most recently, then, she came to the Bureau of Lost Culture to talk with me about dreaming as countercultural consciousness. So, here we go. Hello, Sarah. Nice to see you. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Stephen.
0: Sarah, I said a little bit about you in the intro uh, and what we're going to talk about, but why don't you say more about you, how you came to this life in dreams?
1: Well, I've always loved dreams ever since I was a child. My favourite stories growing up, and I think it's a sort of feedback system, the stories that you're into feed into your dreams and then your dreams feed into those stories. So I loved um, uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. I loved kind of um fantasy books not so much the tolkien types of fantasy but kind of dreamy types of fantasy i love jg ballard as a teenager and things like this so i always loved representations of dreaming consciousness in tv film and books i think it's relatively unusual to remember dreams that go back into toddlerhood but i remember dreams of um just being in this pure white space and as I grew older, um, that space would be kind of filled in. And initially it was dominated by childhood toys and then animals and then people. And so I guess that I've had this really rich dream life ever since I can remember. And so it's informed every, every other aspect of my waking life. Um, and then, as you know, I run a lecture club down in Hastings on the South Coast. And one of my guests was David Luke who specialises in what he calls exceptional human experiences, psychedelic drugs, telepathy, psi, this kind of stuff. And he was telling me that he'd recently gone on a trip with a shaman to what remains of a British Romano sleep temple in Gloucestershire on an estate owned by uh, Lydney Park. I'd read about sleep temples, I think, in the past, but it was a bit of a penny-dropping moment where I realised I've always loved ancient culture I was always very philosophical Um, even as a little kid I used to philosophize about the nature of reality and so it was this perfect marriage of my interest in dreams and ancient culture and it's an incredibly a surprisingly rich seam of ancient wisdom and like new perspectives on the world and on reality. I think dreams are hugely important and incredibly underrated in, in modern culture.
0: We were just talking before we started then, and then to put it in the context of Bureau of Lost Culture, which is largely about countercultural themes. One way of say, seeing dreams or dreaming is countercultural consciousness, right? In the sense that there's the culture, there's the counterculture. You can't have one without the other. And when we say counterculture, I've come to the understanding that, you know, that isn't just the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, it? stretches back through time. Dreaming itself as a part of the human experience is there right from the beginning in the myths in the stories in the literature all the way through. So how does that strike you that phrase of dreaming as countercultural consciousness?
1: Yeah, I love that. To me, dreaming is like the culture of the psyche. It's like this, like you say, it's a different culture that runs parallel to the world's ordinary culture. Also, There are, there's a lot of taboos and um, things that can't be mentioned in polite society that, you know, that generate and manifest in the dream state that's quite interesting. But um, I was thinking about what you said with regards to it being this, this different culture of consciousness. And I think that it's actually a relatively new phenomenon in terms of human beings that dreaming isn't considered a collective experience in some way because most ancient cultures viewed dreams as providing access to the dead, to Mm. the gods and to visions of the future. And that's something that we have forgotten about over the course of millennia. And these days we look at dreams as being like purely reflecting our own individual experience of the world. A kind of tragic notion really that dreams don't offer this transcendent experience but i think anyone that has a rich dream life anyone that's had a big dream or a divine dream can appreciate and understand how life-changing really fantastic dreams can be sometimes and everyone knows that if they wake up from a nightmare they feel horrible and if you wake up from a fantastic dream you can like live off that high for a while Mm -hmm. if you look at ancient perceptions of dreaming and in particular in nightmares because it kind of does work both ways Ancient people in Egypt, Mesopotamia and even ancient Greece as well believed that um, a bad dream, like a a demonic type of dream, was something that came from outside of yourself. And so you could be overwhelmed and overpowered by a demonic dream entity.
0: Like the collective unconscious is dreaming. I was quite struck when you were saying about your childhood memories about dreams, because I think one of my earliest memories is a dream. But unfortunately, not like yours, it's much more nightmarish, which was... A slope, uh, like a hill, in the darkness with logs rolling down it for infinity. And it was something terrifying about the fact that I knew in the dream that this was going to go on forever. I can't say more about it than that. It must have been about two or three or something, I guess. Dreaming and nightmares particularly were sort of definitely part of my childhood. You talk then about the ancient cultures, and I grew up in a kind of religious setting. And one of the things which I remember quite strongly, which I loved actually, is that doesn't the pharaoh have a dream and he calls joseph to interpret it for him that's actually one way that joseph in a sense gets the power to bring freedom to his own people isn't it
1: yeah there's records in ancient egyptian some people sort of parallel imhotep with joseph because he had this uh posthumous role as a dream interpreter and in the famine stilo in ancient Egypt, there is mention of this story of a dream where there's the sort of seven years of um, there's like the fat of the land and then there's famine. And um, it's something that people are seen to prepare for. I mean, with regards to the plagues, I always thought that I don't understand why they didn't eat the locusts because they're much <laughs> more nutritional. Yeah, there's loads of references to these divine dreams in the Bible. Mm. Spent a lot of time in Greece recently. And there's definitely been a lot of this kind of like pagan dream incubation and divine dreams um, woven into the fabric of Greek orthodoxy is that it's really strong in Greece that uh, dreams can reveal secrets, dreams can reveal where icons have been buried and they can um, facilitate Contact with especially the Virgin Mary.
0: I think littered throughout the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, aren't they? I think there's the Jacob's ladder throughout literature. Perhaps it's more recently that we have tried to downgrade them to some personal experience. And I'm sure this is changing, but there was this time, wasn't there, when scientists or the scientific mind was derisory towards dreaming, seeing it as a kind of defragmentation of the of the brain as a sort of hard drive. Something's gone on in the daytime and in the nighttime your brain is kind of like organising things, that's it. And yet in our culture, not even the hardest core scientist would, you know, say to Martin Luther King about his speech I have a dream that, oh, well, he must have had a sort of cheese sandwich quite late at night or he was just his mind sorting out the detritus of the day. We've moved on a bit, haven't we, from that, but we haven't quite maybe got to the point of taking dreams as seriously again as we might
1: i think there's going to be a resurgence of interest coming out of the similarity of brain states and brainwave frequencies with the research that's taking place in psychedelics Mm -hmm. because there's something so similar about lucid dreaming and certain psychedelic types of experiences and likewise uh, near-death experience research shows that the experiences that you have during near-death experiences very sim- can be very similar to lucid dreams, as just in terms of the brain. But I think, you know, my thing with dreams is if you have good dreams, it just adds this richness and this dimension to life that can otherwise be lacking if you're always having to be in waking material reality and you don't have that freedom and that expansion of consciousness that you can experience in dreams. And in particular, lucid dreaming, actually, because one thing lucid dreaming, I think, um, has the effect similar to certain psychedelics um, of giving uh, people the overview effect so I think it's been demonstrated in in things like psilocybin that you can get this overview effect it's why psilocybin is used for marriage counseling sometimes because you can um, observe a situation objectively and you don't necessarily take the certain things personally and I think lucid dreaming can have a very similar. Effect sometimes that you're able to see yourself from multiple perspectives, from multiple people's um, positions, an expansion of consciousness, because you can see with everything, you don't just see out of your eyes, you see out of every atom and pore of your being, as well as close up and far away at the same time, whatever you give your attention to becomes bigger. When you think about something, it instantly manifests. When you fly, for example, which is a really common lucid dream, um, you're not just flying through the air that's separate from you. You are the air that lifts up the avatar as well as being the being that's flying. So when I was a kid, I was so interested in dreaming, just what an incredible rich visual phenomenon it is. And so I would try to find books on neuroscience about dreaming. And I came to the conclusion that neuroscientists must just not have very good dreams, because if you dreamt and you were studying the brain, it would be the most interesting area to study. One of the theories about why we dream is that in order to preserve the integrity of the visual cortex, we generate visual content to keep it active during the night when, when otherwise it could potentially be taken over by other brain regions. I don't subscribe to that idea. I, in part, think it's to do about, uh, to do with building up your personality. I think, you know, babies spend an, an inordinate amount of time in REM sleep and essentially encode our personality and our soul into these imaginal structures and landscapes in our dreams. And that's who we are. If you if you are ever conscious in a dream and you look around, you see yourself kind of encoded in the landscape.
0: For anybody who doesn't know what lucid dreaming is, I'm imagining most listeners already do, that's really when you become conscious in the dream that you are dreaming. And I know you're an adept at it you also teach it uh, and it is something that can be developed I mean I think it's generally said that younger people are better at it but you can sort of develop it and you know become the pilot uh, to get this overview as you describe it dreaming is also useless it seems to me in the most positive way, because it's like I record my dreams every day. I've done them for a long time. And when friends ask me why, I, you know, what do you do with the information? Well, not a lot, actually. It's not like I, I kind of spend ages interpreting it. But I feel somehow enriched by it. It's almost like my imagination has had a soaking in some beautiful fluid or something. Now, obviously, it's not claiming that my dreams uh, are always beautiful, filled with anxieties, fears and neuroses as everybody else's are. But somehow one is enriched by it. It doesn't seem specifically useful in the sense that you know you get ideas necessarily for for creative works from it but the consciousness has been expanded in a way which just feels healthy
1: completely agree with that and but i do think it can be really useful i mean one thing that I found is by bringing ideas or, you know, they might not necessarily be brainwaves or eureka moments, but by bringing symbols and motifs out of your dreams into your waking reality, you start to recognize the dreamlike nature of reality. And this can make you go a bit mad. I mean, when I was in my 20s, I was having spending so much time in lucid dreams that I started to feel like I was living in the matrix. And actually, when I had my daughter when I was 30, that was a very grounding experience for me. I went through about a year of really serious sleep deprivation, which I'd never, ever had in my entire life. I always just found sleeping and dreaming so easy. So when lucid, when I finally got lucid dreaming back, I was so grateful that in the lucid dreams, I'd be like, tell me what you want me to do. And, and I would think about it in terms of what can I learn about myself or the dream itself? by just observing it while I was conscious in in the dream, while I was aware of it. And that's been that's been another level of enriching, but I absolutely know what you mean. Like- I
0: mean uselessness in the sense to be the opposite of utilitarian. We live in a society where things are supposed to, you know, have a utilitarian reason quite often, right? I mean, if you spent like an hour and a half drawing every day just for your own pleasure, nobody would say to you, what's the use of that? You know, the use of it's is apparent, isn't it, right? I also got this feeling that virtually all the theories that we've had about dreams, they're kind of all correct. Yes, it may be your your hard drive defragmenting. It might be your visual cortex kind of keeping, keeping its activity up. It may also be the royal road to the unconscious. They may be also symbols of the collective unconscious. There may be precognitions of things. All those things can be, could be true not all dreams have the same function and it's a bit like with psychedelics we've had this it's come a couple of times in the show recently is that psychedelics like dreams i think will always defy being fully explained by science or by any other approach to them they're sort of somehow always going to be mysterious no
1: yeah i completely agree with that and it's part of the reason why i'm not too concerned about getting into the science and the neuroscience of mm-hmm. dreams Because I think you're absolutely right. I think they can be everything and anything in a way. And if they mean and they have value for you, then that's the most important thing, really. You know, unless you're told in a dream that you should go out and, like, kill someone, um, I think, generally speaking, dreams are useful guides (laughs) for life. It's also important to be grounded. Similarly to psychedelics, you can... Talk about the science and the neuroscience of whatever neurotransmitters and chemicals are present in the brain till the cows come home. But when you have that transcendent experience, that's like an enriching human soul experience. And I guess the soul is left out of conversations in science. And that's why humanity is somewhat impoverished in the West, because we don't think about soul or spirit. I mean, I think the imagination is has kind of been forgotten about in some ways because we're so spoon-fed culture and imagery and media, we forget about conjuring it up for ourselves. Dreaming has a lot of potential for work in that way because you, in lucid dreams, you see that you can instantly manifest things that you think about and that gives you the sense that in ordinary life, if you think about it and you imagine it, that you can in some ways start to create it.
0: Do you feel that dreaming also, or, or kind of consciously practicing dreaming, whether you get to the stage of lucidity or not, could be, or is in fact, good for our mental health?
1: I've always felt, like you said, that it feels good for you to dream. Mm. And I, I've always had that instinctive feeling as well. I've heard like people ask me questions sometimes, you know, is can lucid dreaming be bad or why it's not so good to practice lucid dreaming all the time? And the only possible reason that I could imagine lucid dreaming wouldn't be good for you is if um you are uh, not getting enough deep sleep so body and brain prioritizes deep sleep so usually when you fall asleep at night um you have these successively deeper cycles of REM sleep so the longest Um, phase of REM sleep is just before you wake up which is why most people only really recall like the last portion of a dream or the last dream that they have but that that like last final couple of cycles of REM can last about 90 minutes and so that's the way you're most likely to have lucid dreaming which is why so many people practice lucid dreaming by using the wake back to bed technique because that's probably the most reliable way to remember the dreams in terms of the neuroscience and the sort of cognitive aspects of dreaming The relationship between dreaming and memory is an avenue that I think hasn't been explored enough scientifically because I think dreaming holds a lot of keys to how memory works.
0: Just to go back to your point about imagination being unexplored, and part of that kind of bathing in dreams, which I talked about, is that it kind of moistens your imagination, you know, in a non specific way. And of course, we can look at, like, say, even the art of the 20th century, like Dadaism and Surrealism, you know, how there's a direct connection there with, with dreams. You said something last time we spoke actually, which uh, I never thought before. I think you said that the nearest thing that we've got to dreaming consciousness in awakening consciousness is films, right? When you, when you lose yourself in a film. and uh, uh, Not just the films like The Matrix and Inception that have dealt with dreams specifically. So in dreams the most extraordinary things happen i'm not paradoxes and complications and images that one could really never come up with in waking life and yet in the dream we're not going oh my god you know there's an elephant on top of st paul's cathedral we're just looking up at the elephant on top of why is that that surprise thing often not there
1: because there are certain areas of the brain that are more active than others during dreaming so one of the defining sort of um neurophysical to me dreams you know ai is very interesting the way you generate ai film content to me can look really similar to how a dream mm. seems to move through these processes of association so it's like a visual representation how a dream unfolds that you associate one thing after the other. And this is why people have these eureka moments in dreams is because you're able to make in the dream state these extraordinarily novel associations, which is why you see weird things in dreams because you are associating fairly far flung images and symbols you know, that is what defines a lucid dream is that you are able to say, Oh, my God, this is weird, I must be dreaming. Um, and that is because a certain area of the brain, the frontal cortex suddenly comes online when it isn't ordinarily online during usual normal REM sleep.
0: But for the non lucid dreamer, the there is no surprise I mean, you often walk through extraordinary landscapes and all sorts of weird things are happening. And yet we're not responding to it in the way that we would in waking life and there is something odd about that though
1: it is interesting neuroscience of it is less interesting perhaps than the sort of philosophical sides of Mm. it you know not questioning it enables you to stay asleep probably so there's probably an evolutionary um, advantage to staying asleep even through these incredibly novel weird associations So that would make sense to me that you're supposed to stay asleep because you need sleep for detoxification, cell regeneration, and part of that is built into um, not being aroused during even the weirdest scenarios Mm -hmm. in a dream.
0: We don't want to wake up because we've just seen an elephant on top of St. Paul's because we've got to get up and go to work the next day. And be yeah. Able- I mean,
1: you mentioned nightmares there. And I should say that a lot of people get into lucid dreaming because they had nightmares mm. as a child. And a lot of children learn that within a dream, when they're terrified, they realize that the whatever it is they're terrified can't possibly be real. And that enables them to wake up right. in the dream. And then frequently they'll decide that they're going to fight and be really strong, give themselves mm. a sword or... They might decide to love the thing and realise that if they're not scared, the thing changes, or at least if they're not scared, that the 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 thing that they're so terrified from seems to transform into something not scary, or they learn to wake themselves up.
0: Recently, I was in my in a dream. I was in my mother's house, and when I came downstairs, in the drawing room, there was this completely black figure with no features right i actually did a sort of kung fu kick on it which is most unlike me because i'm not going to work in waking life for sure woke up because i was so alarmed by it but i thought actually that figure i felt somehow was worth further investigation so do you think that it is can be valuable to revisit like young's active imagination to revisit some of our dreams in waking life to see if we could respond differently
1: Oh, I love that idea. So I've recently um, been working with Daisy Campbell, I think is going to be a future guest, hopefully, dramaturg, theatre director and playwright, and uh, Jonah Emerson Bell, who's an astrologer and uh, therapist, and the two of them did uh, dream psychodrama, like dream theatre. And I'm generally like the sort of person that doesn't like being pulled out of the audience, don't really want to get, like, don't want to really do the audience participation. But a few of us had a go at being the dream director. And we did pretty much all anxiety dreams, which made it even more interesting. When a, a, an anxiety dream was presented and then the person that had, had that dream was the dream director. And then they chose characters to act out the various different parts. And they could be really, it was like, well, there was one that was the classic teeth falling out. And I played the man's mouth and the other actors played the teeth and we ended up giving our perspective on how it feels for me to be the mouth how does the teeth feel and it really did kind of alchemize the dream for the person Mm -hmm. because they saw this dream from these multiple perspectives and they saw the ridiculousness and the funny nature Mm -hmm. of it and the the sort of complexity of those symbols as well which they may not necessarily have Been conscious of in the dream or even when they looked at it upon waking. Really funny as well. I do think that that's why kids usually have such a rich dream life is because Mm. they're more available to ridiculousness and silliness and playfulness of the imagination, which I think often we get kind of beaten out of us as we grow up.
0: When you see little kids playing, particularly if they're playing by themselves sometimes, is that it's like they're in a dream world, isn't it? You know, they're, they're moving t- moving teacups around and it's as real to them as whatever actually is. That's interesting. I mean, in terms of, you know, just to mention Jung again, because uh, you just reminded me of it then when you used this word eyes, The figure that I saw that I just mentioned or blow me down with a feather. About a week later, I'm looking at some alchemical images and there he was. And of course for Jung, that spurred his interest in alchemy because his patients were reporting dream images very strange dream images and sometimes in common between different people which he then saw in alchemical texts which kind of in a way opened up his whole idea of that there is a collective unconscious and that it's been going on for many years so as you said it's not all personal is it
1: it's only recently that we've started to think dreams aren't collective really it's only in the last couple of hundred years if you look into the ancient dream interpretation texts or dream stories in mesopotamia in um egypt and in greece all are completely preoccupied with how dreams can reveal the future and not in a kind of literal accurate visual image of what's about to happen in more of a kind of um oracular divining type of way where clues are there And it's up to a dream interpreter often to interpret what these dream symbols mean.
0: Here is a sidebar about dreams in the Bible. As Sarah mentioned, dreams appeared in literature and mythology throughout history. And I remember some from when I was a kid in those days when I had to read the Bible. And some of the more interesting bits were when people had dreams. Yeah. Apparently, there are 21 dreams recorded in the Bible. And 10 of them happen in the first book. Abimelech's warning, God comes to Abimelech, the king of Gerar, in a dream and warns him not to abduct God's favorite Jacob's wife. Abumar wisely takes the advice. Jacob's Ladder is a famous episode of a dream. Jacob saw angels ascending and descending a wonderful staircase between earth and heaven. In another dream, Jacob was told to return to the land of his father. He obeyed. There are two Josephs who seem to have many prophetic dreams in the Bible. The first is, of course, Joseph, he of the amazing Technicolor coat. An early dream of his was of 12 sheaves of corn, one stood up straight, and 11 bowed down to it. He interpreted this as being that he would be first amongst his siblings. Of course, if you remember the story, they didn't agree, not for a while, at least. In Egypt, whilst imprisoned, He shared a cell with two of the pharaoh's servants. One of them was a cup bearer, who dreamt that he pressed grapes from a vine and gave them to the pharaoh. This apparently was a sign that he would be restored to honour, which he was. The other was the baker, who dreamt that he carried three baskets of bread on his head, and the birds ate them. This was interpreted as a prophecy that he wouldn't be returned to honour, and in fact, he was executed. The pharaoh himself had two disturbing dreams. In one, seven fat cows were devoured by seven scrawny cows, and in another, seven plump ears of grain were devoured by seven thin ones. Only the prisoner, Joseph, can interpret this dream riddle. Egypt is destined to have seven years of good harvest, which will be followed by seven years of devastating famine. Joseph's ability to interpret the pharaoh's dream earned him the second highest position in the kingdom. What would you do if God came to you in a dream one night and said, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. Well, that's what happened to King Solomon. He was the son, of course, of the giant slayer David. God came to him in a dream and said, I'll give you anything you want. Solomon, very wisely, asked not for wealth, power, sex, or a long life, but wisdom. So God generously granted all of them to him. Nebuchadnezzar had various nightmarish dreams. In one, he dreamt of an enormous statue made of various metals, which was smashed by a stone. In another, a huge magnificent tree was cut down to earth and the stump and the roots were left to go mad. The dream represented Nebuchadnezzar's coming downfall, God's judgment on him for his arrogant ways. In the New Testament, Joseph, a different Joseph this time, of course, had various dreams about the birth of Christ. In the first one, an angel told him that Mary, who he was engaged to, was pregnant, but there was no need to divorce her, because the child she was expecting was the Saviour. The three wise men who were on their way to visit the recently-born Jesus were told in a dream to avoid King Herod, probably very wisely, so they returned home because of course the jealous king wanted to kill a boy. Similarly, Joseph again was warned to take Mary and Jesus in a dream to Egypt before Herod hunted them down and when to return. Most famously in the New Testament was the dream of Pontius Pilate's wife. Pontius Pilate was the Roman responsible for deciding whether Jesus was innocent or guilty and whether he should be crucified or set free. Pontius Prance's wife had a terrible nightmare about the trial the night before her husband was due to make his judgment. She begged him to declare Jesus innocent. He didn't take her advice and we know what happened next and this happened in the next two thousand years.
1: In the um, epic of Gilgamesh there's a lot of precognitive dreams and uh, Gilgamesh goes to his mother and his mother interprets them and there's standardized dream dictionaries or dream interpretation texts in the Mesopotamian literature. There's lots of them um, and in the Egyptian and and the Greek.
0: Gary Lackman, a friend who has written a book on precognitive dreaming because he was a pro- precognitive dreamer from right the way back in his days in Blondie. In fact, one of his the songs that he wrote on Blondie's first album is about precognitive dreaming. And he said, it's not for anything. It's not going to give you the numbers of next week's lottery. But it is divinatory, as you describe it, or oracular, you know, and it may it may guide you in a direction for the future rather than giving you some specific useful information. But what's the balance for you between the significance of the, the actual imagery, whatever that might be, however strange that might be, or however mundane that might be, and the actual emotion, the feeling of it? It seems to me that most of my dreams have a very strong feeling tone.
1: Yeah, that's a good point that you raised there because I think that the In lucidity, you often have experiences of ecstasy, like of absolute bliss and rapture. And I think that's something to do with this expansion of consciousness, as we described, the sense of breaking free from the shackles of the human form where you can embody like an entire landscape, an entire world, and you can see from multiple perspectives. And for me, that was always a quite strong defining feature and why I wanted to go, why I wanted to have lucid dreams. Very rarely in real life do I have that level of ecstasy and bliss. Um, But one thing I would say is when I do feel ecstatic in real life, I'm much more likely to have a lucid dream. There does Mm. seem to be some sort of feedback. Very often when I go on holiday and I see like beautiful vistas, like that's the sort of thing that would would make me feel awe inspired and more likely to encourage lucid dreams. But I think that's really interesting. And, and it's one of the reasons why I'm really interested in some of the ideas around divine dreams spontaneously healing people in the ancient world, because I do think that when you experience like an agent of transformation in the dream space it feels like something really, you know, has really happened to you. And so your body responds accordingly. And I always make the comparison of, of erotic dreams, wet dreams, and being able to have an orgasm due to erotic content happening in your dreams. And you could say that. Mm it's like hormones hormones are fluctuating throughout the night I mean um men often have an erection during REM sleep or always have an erection during REM sleep so there are certain physical aspects that would then perhaps encourage you to conjure up erotic imagery but um it's it's amazing the relationship between the body and the dream and how Um, your body does seem to respond to really subtle sensory impressions in the body all the time. And I think the same is true of things like sound and temperature and smell, for example, the perfume of a loved one, I think it's quite likely that if you smell that during um, a dream, that you'll see the loved one in the dream because the olfaction and memory sensors are so close together. And you're always picking up sensory information, whether you're asleep or whether you're dreaming. It's evolutionarily important to be woken up if there's a fire, if you can smell smoke, you know, right. most people will wake up in those kinds of circumstances.
0: Just to keep on the subjects of the senses for a second, then, I mean, Do people who have become blind still dream visually? I'm assuming that people who have been born blind wouldn't because they wouldn't have any visual references at all.
1: From what I've seen in the research, um, people still visually dream if they've become blind at a later stage. If they're born blind, they don't tend to have visual imagery dreams. But I imagine there could even be some exceptions to that. Like you say, I think there are different categories of dreams and I think that even in ancient texts you see these definitions of particular types of dreams so there's a sort of mundane humdrum humdrum everyday dream there's a dream that's like a riddle that needs interpretation and then there are these divine dreams you've actually been witness to something that was outside of yourself
0: I guess the same thing would apply to people who have become deaf. People who've been born deaf maybe don't hear anything in their dreams.
1: Yeah, I think that's generally kind of rule for those sorts. Very hard to say as well, because I'm sure people have said that they don't see anything that they haven't seen prior Hmm. to um, becoming blind. But I kind of think dreaming just meshes and melds everything together. So it's always generating new forms. So um, I wonder about that. Memory
0: in dreams is an interesting one, isn't it? Another thing I've noticed is that when I'm recalling a dream that I've had the night before, sometimes it triggers me to remember other dreams that I've had. And sometimes many months or possibly even years ago, It's almost like they're connected in some way in the dream space. And similarly, I have dreams where I return to landscapes that I've never been to in waking life, but I have been to before in dreams. So the landscape's the same, like you may be walking around a bay and then beyond the bay, there's, you know, that there's going to be a house in a cove, for instance. So you've been there before in the dreams, you've never been there waking life. And it may be even between dreams, you don't recollect that.
1: That's one of my favorite aspects of dreaming is when you're within a dream, you have access to dream memories that you don't necessarily have access to when you're awake. I think it's incredible. I mean, the landscape wise as well. Yeah, I completely get that. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, I was so into dreaming as a kid because I drew a map of the places I, I went to in dreams and drawing that map and creating a kind of visual representation of the landscape just strengthened my ability to go back to it repeatedly and I'll still go back to that same right. place now or, or I'll be somewhere where I know where a part of that landscape is in relation to where I am now but yeah that's That absolutely fascinates me, and that's one of the reasons why I think dreams are um, understudied with regards to memory, because that ability to know and recall ancient dreams sometimes, Mm. you know, um, when you're in a dream is so weird and peculiar. I love it. I mean, to me, it's one of the most fascinating aspects of dreaming. I think that, you know, I've had dreams as well, and I think this is part of lucidity, actually, is it somehow related to memory lucidity because essentially you are remembering who and where you are when you're right. um, you're in a dream and this is why the book that i wrote is um the sort of subtitle is um drinking from the pool of mnemosyne because She's the goddess of divine remembrance, and she was invoked as one of the final rituals in ancient Greek sleep temples. The supplicant would remember that dream. I think it was about remembering that you're dreaming when you're in a dream. That remembering process is also kind of recognizing your divinity and your relationship to this other world. And Mnemosyne is also the uh, psychopomp in the Orphic Mysteries. So she guides... Um, the devotees or the followers of the Orphic Mysteries to the underworld, into Hades. And I've recently just been to the Oracle of Trophonius, actually, where like her role was similar there. She was this sort of psychopomp into the underworld. Um, and in the Orphic Mysteries, and you arrive in Hades, you see this delicious-looking cool spring gushing from the roots of a white beech tree. You're not supposed to drink that because that's the water of forgetting, the water of lethe. Mm. Supposed to carry on until you reach this lake of Mnemosyne and drink from that instead and that water enables you to remember the fact that you're a daughter of the earth and starry heavens, and that's remembering dreams. Another really important aspect of her as an archetype as well is she's the mother of all the muses. So she's the mother, the source of all inspiration in the world, all creative inspiration in the world. There's a sort of inspiration that can't be ascribed to a particular art as we see it, and it creates that ecstatic and that bliss feeling that you have when you're inspired to do something artistic.
0: In my experience, anyway, there's little that compares with the creative absorption you know when you when you are when you lose yourself in the dream of creativity if you're working on something you know when time disappears um in fact the world disappears in some ways actually and the, the distinction between you and the thing you're working on disappears mm-hmm. um so even though i was talking about the uselessness or the, the beautiful uselessness of dreams sometimes earlier do you feel that like in lucidity if one trains oneself was able to do it that work can be done you know the, that that things can be resolved you know we've all got stuff to resolve and work on right i mean is it possible that you know one can imagine consciously in the dream imagine a temple to go to where one might enter a room and in the room find a box and in the box find a message and to actually actively work on things
1: I 100% think it's one of the best ways to work on things. The overview effect that you get from dreaming is amazing for conflict resolution because you don't get caught up in like petty disagreements and you do have this ability to see things from someone else's perspective which can be really useful. One of the reasons why I think dreaming is so vital in terms of how religion and spirituality and ideas of the soul developed is because you dream about people that have died mm-hmm. and you have meaningful encounters with them and it's one of the defining features of dreaming and always has been. So I, I, I'm sure that Dreaming inspired the beginnings of all beliefs in an afterlife. Wow. If a relationship breaks down and you haven't had the opportunity to have that kind of closure that you feel you need, um, you can have that closure in a dream. And You can say goodbye to someone that died that you may not have had a chance to say goodbye to in real life. And it can feel so real. It can be totally and ultimately satisfying. And in terms of creativity, when you bring imagery out of your dreams or when you bring ideas out of your dreams, they take you in new novel directions. They enable you to make novel associations. You you can get this real sense that life is dreaming. I think Mm. that Every day we wake up a little bit more from the dream until we die. And then we'll wake, we wake up properly to the reality of unity consciousness. The
0: notion that like our beliefs in the afterlife came from dreaming, but also you were talking about the other world in the Greek cosmology earlier. Is there a connection then between our dream states and how the afterlife might be? And sort of question two on that would be, does Becoming conscious of our dreams in some way help prepare us for death.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a huge part of uh, Tibetan dream yoga and those beliefs around uh, navigating the afterlife in um, Eastern cultures, but also in Egyptian cultures. Dreaming is seen as in some way traveling through the underworld preparation is familiarizing yourself with that temperature territory a lot of dream gods and goddesses are underworld entities you know i see the underworld as being the unconscious that it, you're exploring the underworld you are traveling through your unconscious and there were there's a lot of um symbology in ancient egypt in particular that looks at the sun setting and the sun traveling through the underworld at night and through through the course of us being asleep all night we are taking that symbolic journey and rising like the sun in the morning. I'm, I'm a sun worshipper, the sun is my god and I wake, I like to wake up at dawn and be part of that cycle of nature and I think it's really energising and um, healthy to take your daily journey through the world with the sun.
0: Here is another sidebar, this is the Orphic Hymn to Eos the Sun. Hear me, torch-bearing goddess, who leads mortals into day. Bright-beaming Eos reddening throughout the cosmos. Angel of noble Tithonus. You march vermilion out of the gloomy night, rising in your eastern lands, emerging from the depths of the underworld. Beacon of the divine light that embraces all mortal life. You delight mankind. Without you we would cease to exist. You allow us mortals to see beyond reality. Whenever sweet sleep is lifted from our eyelids, all human beings rejoice. Every crawling, creeping animal, or four-legged, or winged creatures, all those of the sea, every being. We breathe life into all of the working people. But, most blessed, is the initiate who stands in your sacred temple of light at the break of day.
1: I see a lot of parallels in ancient beliefs and stories about travelling through the underworld. And obviously there is this tradition in Eastern philosophy and spirituality of um, dreams and lucid dreams in particular, being able to pay for death. And even as a, a little kid, I remember thinking, if I can be lucid and conscious in dreams, then I can remember myself when I die.
0: And just to come back to sort of daily life, I think for most of us, we are affected in our daily consciousness by our dreams, aren't we? It's kind of, you know, if you have a big one or an anxious one, or it might be a nightmare, might not be, you know, we might wake up feeling heavy, right? Or feeling kind of something which we take into our day. So they're always affecting our daily lives. They're always strange, but it's not like every single one's significant, but every, maybe twice a year, I'll have one which is emotionally devastating in some way. Um, I remember I had a dream about uh, going to fairyland and um, and having to come back. And it was the having to come back that was the devastating bit. Uh, and then you wake up and it's like you're trying to get back into the dream because you feel like you've lost something immense.
1: Yeah, similarly, those big dreams, those divine dreams, they, they, do, they seem to have an initiatory quality to them, I would say. Like you, I have interesting dreams, different kinds of dreams. I don't, they're not lucid all the time. And then every now and again, I'll have like a big dream. I'm a very grounded person, despite like dreaming and everything. Obviously there was a preoccupation in the ancient world with releasing any fear of death and dreaming can help you release a fear of death. Like psychedelics can, like in end of life care, psychedelics are showing to be really useful to help people be less terrified of dying. And I think it's important. I think part of this... Um, individualistic culture that we're living is really unhealthy and making people incredibly anxious about their fragile existence as a single human being in a eternal cosmic soup that's
0: a great place to end i think uh there Sarah. but just before we do before we wake up um for any listeners who are thinking oh i don't dream very much or i can't remember them Give us some tips. What are your tips for somebody who wants to, first of all, just to be more conscious of their dreams at all and then maybe wants to graduate into the School of Lucidity?
1: My number one tip is afternoon naps. Second tip is write stories, remembering events from your life, but anything where you have to create and imagine scenes is really useful write down any previous dreams that you've had write down your daily diary as if it was a dream the little things that happen and the chance encounters that you have there are certain foods that are really good for dreaming I find apples are good for dreaming create your own little sleep temple in your bedroom guided meditations in the afternoon especially ones that take you on journeys are really good wake back to bed method is one of the best ones reading uh, magical realism is good and watching the holy mountain by jodorowsky is pretty good as well
0: Sarah james thanks very much for coming to the bureau of lost culture
1: thank you so much it was wonderful <laughs>
0: Thanks so much to Sarah for dreaming us through this episode. I'll put links to Sarah and her work in the show notes. And also, she's involved in all sorts of other stuff at Dream Temple in Greece, as mentioned there. And, of course, she runs her own events in Hastings. Now, if you're one of those people who maybe listened to this and thought, God, you know, I I don't dream or I really can't remember, um, don't give up, don't despair. It is possible to learn to remember. It is possible to learn to lucid dream. The way to start really, I've found, is just to write down one's dreams in the morning. Now, that may just be one sentence, or a color, or a feeling. But gradually, if you keep doing this, what happens is that you remember more not only does your memory of the dreams get better, but the way that dreams interact with working life seems to increase. I recommend it anyway. Now, I mentioned at the beginning the Bureau of Last Culture survey. And many people have filled in the so It's been fascinating reading for me. I think I've said before that I've got lots of ideas for films and books. But let me tell you something else, some of the things that I learned. So most people who listen to this show, not that surprisingly perhaps, are in the UK and the US, I speak English of course, but also plenty of people from Germany, Netherlands, Australia and Portugal and further afield, Russia included. Most people are between the ages of 40 and 60, and then the next group is 20 to 40. Slightly more people identify as male than female. Um, And occupations, this was an interesting one. So the listeners of this show range right across the cultural field, as you can imagine, from librarians to a chocolate consultant, record label executive, artists, social workers, civil servants, people who work in education and research... Somebody described himself as a slave, I hope not, and somebody else said that they were leeching off rich, rich parents. Very honest, I like that. Well, when it came to interests, perhaps unsurprisingly, music was right at the top, closely followed by movies, uh, and then books, history, comics, philosophy, drugs, and nature. Those films, well, way too many films to mention, Uh, but I will say that The Big Lebowski with Neil and I, Blade Runner and Spinal Tap appeared many times. And in terms of directors, Jim Jarmusch, David Lynch, the Coen brothers, and Tarantino. In terms of music, way too many artists to uh, mention, but psych, punk, jazz, and electronica featured very highly. In books, again, hundreds of suggestions. But I was very glad to see Patricia Highsmith in there. She's a favourite of mine. Favourite shows today. Well, I was very happy to read. Nearly all of the shows got at least one mention. But I would say that the interview with Alan Moore and the interview with Joey Mellon, the man who drilled a hole, and he said, and Lisa Law uh, and those two programmes, Flashing on the Sixties, got mentioned many times. What would you like to hear more about? Well, music, again, came wide at the top. Stories from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and maybe 80s. Weird, outsider, and fringe subjects, good. Psychedelics, done a bit of that. First-person testimonies. Consciousness, mind, and spirit, fashion, style, and design. People specifically wanted to hear more about Lubbock Grove. I was very glad about that because I've been working on a programme about Lubbock Grove. Psychogeography, so more stuff about cities, particularly perhaps cities outside London, including Manchester, New York, Paris and Berlin. More interviews with women about circuses, counterculture, quite right. More stuff on activism and the environment. Rave culture came up. Squatting and UFOs. Somebody mentioned drummers. I'm not sure if I'm up to making a programme about drummers. I was asking about whether people would be interested in events, and it seems that many of you, us, would be interested in virtual events, which is remote meetups. So I'm going to work on that next year. Also, written pieces, long form, ditto. We have got some actual live events, in-person events, coming up next year, which I will mention too. And I think some people said we'd like to hear more guest presenters get some relief from my uh, droning on, fair enough quite understand that and finally when I asked about um, you know how people might contribute in terms of supporting us, crowdfunding or donation via something like Patreon was right at the top um, and at the bottom it was advertising, which I agree with, I really would rather not actually put advertising in the show, it doesn't feel like in the spirit of it to me. So there we have it thanks very much for everybody who submitted their thoughts uh, you're welcome to join them if you haven't done already and thanks for listening today, thanks for supporting us through uh, this year and the previous three or four I hope you continue to do so and I hope we'll meet again in a couple of weeks for the next episode of the Bureau Lost Culture with more tales from the underground from the upside down from the other side see you down the road Around the bend. Let's finish with a track by the show's sponsor, the band The Real Tuesday World. As it's been an episode about dreams, this is a track called Last Light.